It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Saturday, December 23rd, 2023. I'm Jared Halpern. Is peace possible in Gaza after the October 7th attacks and a bloody war with Hamas? How we get from here to there is an extraordinarily difficult and vexing path. Two major programs that take care of the nation's seniors are running short on cash, on paths to becoming insolvent within a decade, and our politicians have had a little bit of trouble even talking about it. Social Security is not going to have enough resources to pay its promised benefits. It's going to fall about 25%. Short. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. A two-state solution and a lasting peace between Israelis and Palestinians is still possible, President Biden says, even though the prospects are awfully bleak after Hamas terrorists killed 1,500 people and kidnapped hundreds more in a brazen cross-border attack. Israel has launched a massive military response intended to eliminate Hamas and prevent the terrorist organization that runs Gaza from being able to launch attacks in the future. The ensuing war has left more than 20,000 Palestinians dead. Millions are displaced with limited humanitarian aid available. As a growing list of world leaders and international organizations call for a ceasefire, the Biden administration opposes such a move, warning it would only embolden Hamas and justify its actions on October 7th. And any post-conflict Gaza, administration officials say, cannot include Hamas at all. That is raising tough diplomatic questions about who can lead the Gaza Strip and its population of more than two million Palestinians. Back on November 12th, we asked those tough questions to Frank Lowenstein, an international policy expert and a former State Department special envoy for Israeli-Palestinian negotiations. Well, that's really the, the, the question of the day. And I, I think it's interesting that Tony Blinken, Secretary of State, just came out and said it has got to be the Palestinian Authority that is governing over both the West Bank uh, and Gaza Strip. And, and that is, of course, uh, on the face of it, the right answer. But how we get from here to there is an extraordinarily difficult and vexing path. Honestly, right now, the Palestinian Authority is barely hanging on uh, in the West Bank. I think uh, yeah. uh, uh, President Abbas probably projects power. Uh, into a relatively small area of Ramallah and b- barely at all into the whole West. So, and, and there's a lot of anger among the Palestinians that have been directed towards him and and the, and the Palestinian Authority. There's a lot of, of issues with corruption and, and some sort of you know, really anti-humanitarian uh, uh, sort of steps they've taken to keep control there. So you've got a, a, an enormous amount of blowback against the, the PA already. So in order to get them to go into Gaza, the first thing you have to do is, is make that a sustainable enterprise in the West Bank, right? And that's been made all the more difficult by really the, the most extreme government in the history of Israel, which has taken more steps to make it clear to the Palestinians in the West Bank that there is no path to two states for them. So in the first instance, you're going to have to fix the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank before there's any chance that they can play a meaningful role in Gaza Strip. So I think yeah. that's it's one thing to say that's the right answer. It's a very different question to answer of how you get from here to there. Well, and for Gazans, what is their level of trust of of Abbas and 
and the PA. I mean, the PA was basically ousted by Hamas in in 2006, weren't they? Yeah, they were. And and it was uh, the, the trust level is basically non-existent right now. Um, although polls will show it, it was interesting. They did polls in the West Bank and in Gaza Strip and in Gaza, the most of the people said we prefer the PA and in and in the West Bank you had some troubling indications that they 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 were more open to other alternatives. The the, the point being that nobody likes their government, right? And <laughs> and so the you know you're gonna have people saying, hey, we we like these yeah. guys because they're not the current, they're not in charge of the current mess. But in, I think you've raised a really important question, which is how are you going to give the PA credibility in Gaza Strip going forward, given that that they haven't been there in any meaningful way in in, in almost 20 years. And, and there's no there's no popular mandate that they have even in the West Bank. So remember, there hasn't been an election since 2006, right? right? So so Abbas is in year 18 of a of a of a four year term, and so I think that's really done a lot to diminish the credibility of the Palestinian Authority. And I will say this: the one opportunity that may arise from 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 the, from the rubble of this catastrophe is that you could open some possibilities for elections among the Palestinians. That you hadn't had previously. You know, it's mm. always very difficult to have an election that would give the Palestinian Authority that sort of popular mandate. When, when, when Hamas, we ran the risk of Hamas winning that election, which is why we got into this mess in the first place. So now you take Hamas out, you know, assuming you can do that, just disqualify Hamas as a as a political party. Could you then have an election where everybody committed to nonviolence or something along those lines? And then you had you had uh, the opportunity to have people in Gaza vote in the West Bank vote and in East Jerusalem vote, and then you could have this unified body politic of Palestinians with an elected parliament and, and presumably at least an elected president. That to me is going to be absolutely necessary for the PA to survive in the West Bank, let alone play any meaningful role in Gaza. But the point is particularly important with respect to Gaza because the PA has no history there; they have no credibility there. And I think you're going to have to give the people of Gaza an opportunity to say, yes, we consent to the rule of the of the Palestinian Authority here. Again, a lot easier said than done. And would Israel have to consent to the outcome of those elections and to whatever authority w- was sort of being the caretaker here? Um, obviously, they're going to have incredible security concerns after what happened on October 7th. I don't know if that means building some sort of secured sort of buffer zone or, or whatever, but it's possible that that security presence is going to look much different for IDF forces. Yeah, I, I think that that will go a long way towards determining what what the actual post-Gaza governance options are, how this conflict plays out right now. And my, my sense uh, uh, is that complete victory over Hamas, where they're just destroyed entirely as a military force, it's going to be extremely difficult uh, for them to achieve, right? There's estimates are wildly variant, which suggests that there's very weak intelligence. But twenty to forty thousand uh, Hamas soldiers is what they're estimating, and the idea that you could go kill all of those guys or eliminate them from the battlefield in one form or another, I, I don't think that's an achievable goal uh, in in any kind of a reasonable time frame. In other words, that's not going to happen in a month or two months. Or so then the question is, what is the residual uh, impact of Hamas going forward, and and is this main military operation by these guys, effectively just going to transition into a, a lower intensity conflict that's going to extend for a long period of time. And I think that's the most likely outcome. So we're talking now about long-term governance, long-term security responsibility. I think what you're looking at here is, is an extended period of time where the Israeli military will basically be in control of everything that goes on in the Gaza Strip. 
right? And that 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 I could see lasting for six months or more. Again, just a, a, a heavy footprint military operation, less intensity, fewer civilian casualties, but doing basically targeted special forces raids to try to eliminate the remnants of Hamas. But understand that is going to be a long process with a very uncertain outcome. So the idea that you could get in any kind of an international force, I think what everybody would like to do is transition from the Israeli military presence to an international force that could keep the peace there, right? And begin to allow reconstruction to occur. How are you gonna get anybody to come in and put troops on the ground there? Talk to the Arab leaders right now and their their answer is basically like, absolutely not. Yeah. We're well, not going to go in and own this mess. We're not gonna be responsible for fixing you know, what the Israelis and Hamas have broken. So you're just looking at a long period of time here, I'm afraid, where, where the Israeli military will have what Netanyahu is talking about now, which is ultimate security responsibility. The question then becomes, is that the, 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 the state of affairs for years now? Or can you get to a point where it's calm enough and the threat from Hamas is limited enough that Israel can begin to pull back and you would ideally get a, 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 an international force in there to take the place? But the Palestinian Authority has absolutely no ability to, to conduct security operations in Gaza Strip yeah. for as far as the eye can see. The idea that the passive, which barely exists, in the West Bank now could play any kind of meaningful, or, or that they would even want to, right? That they would have the will among the Pashif to go shoot at other Palestinians, even if they're members of Hamas right now. So you have the will and the capability. None of that stuff is present right now. And that's just on the security side. Well, that's what I was, you answered the question I was going to ask, which is, is there a scenario in which maybe Egypt or Jordan or Egypt and Jordan sort of provide the security and the Palestinians then are, you know, responsible for the governance? But it sounds like that's something that, that, those two countries are not on board with. Yeah, that's exactly the right question. I think that's what everybody would love to see happen. They won't do that right now. Right. They, they won't even talk about it right now. I would be very surprised if the Egyptians were ever going to willing to put any ground troops on the uh, on the on the ground in Gaza, M mainly because they don't want to own this problem. The, the, the situation in Gaza is going to be horrific uh, uh, beyond anything we've experienced in the past for an extended period of time. Even after the main military operation and going to have. You know, just food, water, medical care, all that stuff is going to be extremely difficult to, to bring to the level that that, that that meets the minimum humanitarian needs. So the idea that Egypt is going to go in there and somehow or other be responsible for that mess, they won't touch it with a 10-foot pole. And they've been very clear about that. Now, again, things could change. And I think one of the main goals of the administration right now and all the diplomacy they're doing is to try to get some of those Arab countries that were that we have good relations with, good relations to begin to, to, to contemplate taking on a more uh, a meaningful role on the ground. But right now, the, the prospects for Egyptians or Jordanians, I think you might be able to get some Jordanians into the West Bank to, to help uh, uh, strengthen the Palestinian Authority. They, they already trained the, the Palestinian mm -hmm. Authority security forces in the past. Maybe you could get them to play a little bit more of a role doing that on the ground in the West Bank. Right now, they'll refuse, but that, that seems to me in the realm of the possible. Getting them into the into Gaza Strip, I don't see that as a likely scenario in the Egyptians, you know. As, as we say in New York, forget about it. Would the UN, <laughs> is it would, could it be a role for the UN? Well, so yeah, the UN, the problem with the UN is that uh, if you're talking about UN peacekeepers, obviously yeah. you have to move that through the Security Council, incredibly challenging given the, the, the dynamics we have with the Russians yeah. and other, but also who's going to be those peacekeepers? Who Who's going to volunteer? Again, no one's sending peacekeepers almost by definition into a war zone. So at what point does Gaza Strip even become the kind of place where security-wise, uh, uh, it's safe for, for governments to put yeah. other troops in on the ground. And that's where I see this sort of extended period where the Israeli military remains. And hopefully they can create the conditions you know, where, where that might be possible to get an international or an Arab force in there. 
But again, that'll take a lot of diplomacy between now and then to even make that a viable option. As we talk about the Palestinian Authority, one of the conditions that I have heard from the from Abbas and others is that they don't want to move forward in this process without a two-state solution. In other words, why would they take responsibility for the West Bank, take responsibility for Gaza, the the Palestinian population, and still be stateless, right? I mean, so... Is, does this move that conversation forward or do the events over the last month and five weeks just absolutely freeze out any hope of a two-state solution? Uh, it's a great question. Uh, and one of the one of the things that we've always talked about, those of us who've worked in this issue, is that, that maybe the situation had to get worse before it had any chance of getting better. That was when I first went to the White House to explain Kerry's plan to, to try to get the negotiations back up and running. That's basically what they said is, you know, hey, we, we're very skeptical this is going to work, but we want to, you know, give Carrie an opportunity. But how do you answer the question of does this need to get worse before it gets better? My answer was that I personally think that may very well be true, but it's not a policy, right? And and do we want, you know, the Palestinians willing to suffer that much? The Israelis are weak. It's going to get really ugly before getting worse means a, a lot of very bad impacts on the on on Palestinians and probably on Israelis as well. So the question now that it has gotten worse, whether we wanted to or not, and we certainly didn't. Right? Can you take this as an opportunity then to rebuild the Palestinian Authority in a way that might make it effective in the in the West Bank and then ultimately in Gaza? And as you just said, in order to do that, and by the way, in order to get any reconstruction funds into into Gaza Strip from the especially from the Arab world, you're going to have to provide a path to two states, right? And and that is the most vexing challenge for this administration right now because it is very difficult to credibly say here's a path from where we are now. To, to, to a two-state solution, right? And, and so you have to do that in order to get everybody in, but how you can do that in a credible way when you have an Israeli government that's basically going to be saying, we will do nothing to help the Palestinians to reward them. So again, it depends a lot on the composition of the Israeli government. Maybe you'll have, you know, Gantz or, or some centrist coalition that steps in and says, hey, look, we got to take a step back here. It's not in Israel's interest to continue the, the occupation in the current form. We need to empower the PA in a way that we haven't done before. And we need to basically give the Palestinians the opportunity to, to breathe a little bit more, to grow a, a little bit more in terms of the, the, the responsibilities they have in the West Bank in terms of voting for their own leadership. All these kind of things are necessary in order to give the PA a basis to, to move forward. Will you have leadership in Israel that sees the problem that way? Or will you have Smotrich and Ben Gavir and the extreme right wing uh, continuing to run the cabinet? And their objective here is to drive the PA out of business. Right? They see this as an opportunity to kill the PA once and for all so that nobody will pressure them on making any concessions. They can continue to do more or less whatever they want in the West Bank. So again, much will depend on what kind of attitude the Israeli leadership. And I would just say very quickly on that, given the mentality of the Israeli people right now, and I think we can all sort of understand how, how traumatic this was, how angry they are, and how defensive they are, and how protective they're going to be of their own security prerogatives. How you square that with giving the Palestinians more space to grow and through the Palestinian Authority and create a, a horizon for two states. That's the fundamental challenge the administration is facing. Well, my goodness, there are no easy answers in, in this part of the world. And I know that you spend a lot of time thinking about this and, and a lot of diplomats spend a lot of time thinking about this. But to your earlier point, this is not something that's going to resolve itself anytime soon. And, and we could be talking about these uh, these questions for an awfully long time. So I hope you'll uh, continue to, to engage with us and have these conversations as we move forward. I really appreciate your time. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com.
The year began with a big dust-up over entitlements at the State of the Union back in February. Some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security sunset. I'm not saying it's a majority. President Biden was referring to Florida Republican Senator Rick Scott's proposal that would put each government program on the chopping block every five years. And he'd said if it was that important, it would survive with a vote. But Republicans booed sufficiently and the president put a cap on that discussion. As we all apparently agree, Social Security and Medicare is off the, off the books now, right? They're not to be sponsored. All right. The finality of that didn't last long, though. Their plan would cut Social Security benefits. I thought we had this, they agreed not to do this a couple times, but they're back at it. Benefits, average benefit cut would be 13% for people. And that was him in November, referring to a paper released by the House Republican Study Committee, which proposes raising the age at which you can receive full Social Security benefits to 69. Right now it's 67. Thing is, Social Security and a critical part of Medicare are going insolvent within a decade. And Republicans, including the presidential candidates, are the ones saying it needs to be addressed. At the November 8th NBC debate in Miami, the candidates were asked about it, and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley said this. Any candidate that tells you that they're not going to take on entitlements is not being serious. But weeks later at a town hall hosted by Fox News host John Hannity, former President Trump said American energy can handle the costs. You don't have to touch Social Security. We have money laying in the ground far greater than anything we can do by hurting senior citizens with their Social Security. Medicare Part A begins to run out of money to provide full benefits in 2031. Social Security begins insolvency by 2033. Yeah, I mean, look, bankruptcy is a legal term, and obviously it doesn't technically apply to Social Security. Mark Goldwine is the senior vice president of the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. But in effect, it's something similar. Um, Social Security is not going to have enough resources to pay its promised benefits. It's going to fall about 25 percent short, which means that in 10 years time, there will be an across the board benefit cut of about 20 to 25 percent. Being short is significant, right? Because um, the statistics indicate Social Security actually keeps people out of poverty, right? Like that without it, 38 or 39 percent of people who receive it would actually be in in poverty. So even if you're if you're missing 20 to 25 percent of what you would normally be getting, that matters. That's right. For for a typical couple that retires in 2033, benefits will be cut $17,400. That's a typical benefit cut. It's less for low-income uh, couples, but it's a greater share of their income because people that are at the lower ends of the income spectrum really do rely very heavily on Social Security for their retirement income. Okay, let's talk about Medicare. That is also in trouble. It is also going insolvent. Um, in short order. And it's it's part A, right? Part A of Medicare. That's the, the part that covers hospital visits. Part B, which is doctor visits, and D, that's prescription drugs. Those are not in trouble the same way part A is. Is that correct? That's right. All parts of Medicare are facing growing costs, but only part A has that self-financed trust fund. And so only part A faces insolvency. And that's just eight years away. Mark, why are we in this situation? Because I'm reading, um, you know, some say it's, well, it's the demographics, you know, it's baby boomers. But that is that, that's not it entirely, right? Uh, well, so when it comes to Medicare, it's this one-two punch of an aging population and rising healthcare costs. And so we're paying more for each service 
And there's an increased number of people that are collecting those services that are going to the hospital um, and that are on the program. And with Social Security, why are we in this situation would be your Social Security really, really is a case of demographics. Um, The benefits grow with wages. um, And so as we get richer, that goes straight into new benefits. But we're getting older and older. Our population is essentially no longer growing. It's just growing older. And so we're having the same number of workers financing a rising number of, of beneficiaries. Our population is no longer growing. Does that include immigration? Immigration helps a bit. um, And more immigration would make things a little bit better, at least in the near term. But immigrants also age. And so um, it's just a little bit of a Band-Aid solution. So is the solution to actually have children? (laughs) Uh, That would help. I mean, look, having children wouldn't help for at least 20 years anyway. The problem is we're 10 years from insolvency. Right. So you can't make these little tiny changes, whether they're demographic, whether they're economic, whether they're policy, and expect it's going to be enough to avoid that 23% cut. At this point, we are close enough to this deadline that we need to make some pretty significant changes. And while um, growing the population faster would help over the over the long run, it wouldn't do anything in time to avoid insolvency. So then let's talk about that. We spoke before and we were talking about the debt, um, which is uh, now about close to $34 trillion. You had said any plan to tackle that that does not address these entitlements like Medicare and Social Security is unrealistic. Um, So I imagine you guys have at least a couple of proposals for each of these programs as to how to save them. But if we're going to tackle them in in conjunction with this debt, what what do we do? Yeah, look, Social Security and Medicare are the two largest government programs, and we're going to have to get both of their costs under control. For Medicare, the good news is the bad news, which is that there's such an incredible amount of waste in the Medicare program, such an incredible amount of overpayments, that we can probably save a significant amount of money without compromising the value or availability of care. We can do that by making sure that we're not paying more for treatments you get in a hospital versus a doctor's clinic. We can do it by having making sure these private Medicare Advantage plans um, are competing sort of on the level and not fudging their numbers in order to get their their rates up. We can do it through better incentives so that people aren't being over-treated for care. So there's so much we can do in Medicare to get those costs down without really affecting beneficiaries much. In Social Security, it's tougher. In Social Security, it's, it's much closer to zero sum. And so we're going to decide who needs the benefits the most. It's probably the lower income seniors, the oldest seniors. Um, who can afford to see their benefits grow more slowly is probably the wealthiest seniors. And where can we we do more to encourage people to stay in the workforce where they're contributing to the economy, where they're saving for their own retirement um, rather than, than collecting Social Security benefits? And so we should probably look at the retirement age. And then in both of these programs, uh, we're not going to save enough money to stop their spending growth. So we're probably going to have to bring in additional tax revenue to help cover the, the gap. So you you know this is political. Um, that's why that's why I'm actually happy to talk to you because so many people don't want to talk about this, right? They're they're afraid. Um, it's become this third rail. Nikki Haley wouldn't give like a, a specific age by which she would raise that retirement age to, right? And it's 67 for full benefits and 62 for about 70 percent of your benefits. It's on the Social Security side. Um, but at one of these Republican debates. 
um, Florida Governor DeSantis said, wait a second, life expectancy is actually declining. So is raising the retirement age actually the right approach here in addressing Social Security? Does he have a point? Um, Well, life expectancy is not declining. Life expectancy had a one-time decline driven by the COVID pandemic um, and some quirks of the way we measure it. It is already sort of going back to where it was. But Mm -hmm. here's my solution. Let's index the retirement age to life expectancy. And that way, if what I think will happen, life expectancy continues to grow, the age will go up. If uh, Governor DeSantis is, is right and life expectancy keeps going down, the age will go down. And Social Security won't have as much uh, financial problems. But let's stop guessing about what's going to happen. And let's just peg the age to what actually does happen. Okay, so former President Trump, right, who's dominating in these Republican polls, he says, don't touch Social Security or Medicare. Cut waste, fraud and abuse anywhere else, but don't cut the programs. It sounds like you're saying, fine, cut waste, fraud and abuse on the Medicare side, because there is a lot of there are a lot of overexpenses with with. Um, our medical system. Um, but but it sounds like even as he's saying this, that that he's worried that any talk of, of like cuts hurt, would hurt grandma and grandpa like right now, right? And there's almost a vibe that, that, give, that people give off when they talk about this, right? Like don't talk about it because you're going to scare, you're going to scare people who are close to retirement age or in retirement. But what if there's a plan that addresses maybe, you know, people middle-aged or even younger um, and and the younger half of the population sort of agrees to to take on some sort of burden or some sort of shift. Is that how this would have to work? Is there would have to be like sort of a a, a delineation, an age marker by which this by which new rules would apply to you? Well, well, first of all, the worst thing you can do for grandma and grandpa is nothing because today's newest retirees will be seventy two years old when Social Security is insolvent and their benefits are cut 23%. The current law cannot guarantee benefits to current beneficiaries. Mm. They all face a cut. Um, Now, as we're solving this, we ought to focus the changes on, uh, to the extent possible, on younger Americans. I don't think the best way to do this is through a cutoff. I think the best way to do that is through gradual phase-ins. So most policies should only apply to new beneficiaries, and they should be phased in gradually so that... um, you know, the first cohort of beneficiaries that's affected only sees a tiny difference that they probably wouldn't even notice. And then that gradually accumulates. But is that, wait, Mark, is that enough though? Because like you said earlier in the interview, we need to sort of get a hold of this now, right? In the next less than a decade. So, so does some, do some change, what change would have to apply immediately then? Yeah. So we've lost our most valuable resource, which is time. Had we done this in the late 90s or in 2000s or even 2010, we could have phased in everything over generations. Uh, when I worked in the Simpson Bowles Fiscal Commission in 2010, we proposed phasing things in by 2050, so over 40 years. We don't have that luxury anymore. Wow. Now we probably need to look at more like five or 10 year phase-ins, and we probably need to do more on the tax revenue side to close that gap because we're not going to get the benefits under control nearly fast enough to avoid insolvency. Tax revenue side, meaning we, we have to raise taxes to tackle this in the short term. That, that we, we are past the point we can solve this without raising taxes. So okay. we should then think about what's the most efficient way to raise taxes, what's the most fair way to raise taxes. And taxes shouldn't be the whole solution, but, it, but it's going to have to be some of the solution.
I imagine anybody who proposes that tax to save Social Security and Medicare will will be heavily relying on the word sunset as they propose it. Um, okay, finally, Mark, anyone will tell you, and I think you actually did tell me this, you know, don't don't rely on Social Security. You know, have your own retirement. I think any, everybody said that, right? And that's fine. But Medicare is different, right, than, than saving for retirement. And our conversation sort of makes me wonder, like, do I need to not just save for retirement, but but have enough money in that retirement pool to maybe pay for my own health care if, if, I'm, if I'm looking at a, at a Medicare system that, that can't cover me fully? Yeah, well, you have to remember, even the current Medicare system um, yeah, doesn't cover seniors nearly fully. Um, you pay a premium, you pay cost sharing. It doesn't cover long-term care. A lot of people buy these supplemental Medigap plans to fill in mm-hmm. some of those gaps. So, um, so yes, uh, you, sh- you should be, as part of your retirement planning, understanding that even with a vibrant Medicare program, your health costs are going to be more expensive uh, as, as you get later in life. Has any candidate... This is, I don't even know if you can answer this, but has any candidate sort of properly addressed these concerns or, 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 or proposed a solution that is even a good starting point to to have a conversation about this? Well, in, in, um, I think the third Republican debate, uh, Chris Christie and Nikki Haley were, um, I think having the right conversation, they were talking about how you should look at raising the retirement age. They didn't have a lot of detail, but they were, they were having the right conversation. Uh, meanwhile, the the other candidates were basically throwing myths at this. They were saying, "Well, we can grow our way out." Uh, President Trump has said, "Well, we're going to dig our way out," um, you know, by by digging oil. These are ridiculous notions. Um, we fact check them. There's no plausible level of economic growth consistent with saving Social Security. There's not enough oil in the world to save Social Security. Uh, these are fake solutions. And so, um, you know, kudos to Governor Christie and Ambassador Haley for at least talking about the beginning of real solutions. And the and the Biden administration, the way that um, the president repeatedly, I, I don't even know if you can answer this either, but the, the way that the, the Democrats sort of repeatedly sort of tell voters, oh, the Republicans are going to take away your Medicare and Social Security. I imagine that's like, I guess, politics aside, like that sort of rhetoric isn't helpful, right? Because we do have a problem on our hands here. Yeah, this kind of demagoguery is hugely unhelpful. I thought it was one of his worst moments when President Biden at the State of the Union declared that Social Security and Medicare need to be off the books. Um, That is ridiculous. At times, the president has talked about raising more taxes to go into Social Security. Um, I think he ought to talk about that more because he should put out his tax plan, let Republicans put out their benefit plan, and then come to the table and compromise like they did in 1983 um, in legislation that President Biden had actually voted for. But this rhetoric that we're not going to touch Social Security or that touching Social Security is killing grandma, uh, it's it's totally unhelpful and, and pretty dishonest. Mark Goldwine, Senior Vice President at the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. Thanks so much for joining. Thanks for having me. Tomorrow on the Fox News Rundown from Washington, just a little more than two weeks until the Iowa caucuses. We revisit a timely conversation with Republican Senator Joni Ernst on the first in the nation contest and a must listen to deeply reported story from our senior congressional correspondent, Chad Pergram, on whiskey, Washington and international intrigue. Until then, thanks for listening. I'm Jared Halpern. This is the Fox News Rundown.
from Washington. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com.